up, everybody? You're listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast, brought to you by Discipleship.org. This is your host, Dave Stovall, and today we're going to be listening to Global Discipleship Initiative's last track session from this most recent forum we just hosted. This one's titled, Why Microgroups Are So Simple, Almost Anyone Can Lead. I like this title because when I was leading my first small group, it was a gender-specific small group. I was really insecure about doing it because my lead pastor had done it before me and he did it so well. And he's just like this, you know, walking encyclopedia about biblical knowledge. And I was like, that's not who I am. But my executive minister really encouraged me and said, Dave, you just need to lead with transparency and facilitate the questions and pray for your group and it will work just fine. And he was right. Let's listen to Greg and Ralph encourage us today about leading small groups and being good facilitators. Here we go. My name is Greg Ogden. I'm one of the key principal partners in Global Discipleship Initiative is our ministry here. That's where all of our resources there and a lot of, I see all these blue shirts around. People are engaged with us in our ministry. Um, I live in Monterey, California. Um, that's where my residence is for the last 10 plus years. Um, after I Redeploy, as I call it, uh, and uh, so I've been working on sharing intentional disciple making for quite a number of years at this point. So um, you see what our focus is. Uh, we've been tackling these four major obstacles to making reproducing disciples. Uh, first one was on growing a disciple making culture. Uh, culture is a very ineffable thing when it comes to church life. There's it's subterranean in a sense. You have culture that you cannot see in terms of values that are held and there's things that you can see and trying to get the culture to move in the direction of disciple making so that it all flows together is, is a challenging thing. Uh, then we were thinking about uh, you can't make really disciples through programs, but that's what we try to do. Uh, and we missed the relational component, the key element there. This last element time, we talked about, I think, the major conundrum uh, in disciple making, and that is how do you make disciples who actually make disciples? How do you move beyond the nice quoting of 2 Timothy 2.2, which we all know, and actually turn that into a reality? And so we, we talked about that in the last session. And so today, I want to address the, the myth that only the elite can be disciple makers. Um, I, I don't think most people see themselves as disciple makers. That's something for somebody else who is far more committed and knowledgeable and, and uh, all those kinds of things um, than, than I am, you know, that kind of stuff. So let me kind of uh, try to sort of define the obstacle. First, disciple makers are a special breed who have attained a high level of maturity and self-confidence. They are the special forces in God's army. That's kind of the, that's the myth that I'm trying to dispel uh, in this particular session that no, we can actually create an approach to disciple making that is accessible to the vast majority of people. That's what our, our hope is. Here. To get at it, let me uh, uh, come at. Uh, oh yeah, I forgot what I put on here. Um, what what might the average person hear if they are called to be a disciple or a disciple maker? What comes to mind? Uh, with whom or what does a person associate the word disciple? So I began to think, we use this term very casually and quickly, especially those of us in leadership in the church. But when you're using it in the context of the congregation, and you're asking people to be a disciple makers or even be a disciple, what's the filter through which they are hearing that? Any, any thoughts on that? Creepy. What's that? Sounds creepy. Creepy. Can you say a little bit more about that? <laughs> and that was not the first thought I came to my mind. But uh. Uh, I came from Southern California, and oh, yeah. there were uh, the idea of a disciple um, was almost cultish. Okay. All right. Okay. You associate also the word disciple with gangs, right? So that's uh, oftentimes their, that's the title of their gang is used in the term disciples, so you're sold out to. So that's an interesting, interesting response. Yeah. I come from the north. The disciple are those 12 
in the Bible. The, the disciples are them, not us. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we don't associate ourselves with disciples. That's the, the heroes of the faith that were 2,000 years old. Yeah. Okay. So there's a massive gulf um, there. Yeah. Or maybe since the disciples were also the apostles, that's like way above what I could ever be, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they also got martyred. Is that, <laughs> is that what I'm signing up for? If I could be a disciple, is that okay, martyrdom is in my future. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I just realized that we throw these words out so casually without I know, wondering how they actually land on the ears of the people that we're talking to. And uh, so I'm not sure if I have. I, I think. That's why you sometimes substitute what follower of Jesus versus a disciple. So that's a, maybe a better term, uh, you know, how to be a follower. Uh, but you have to sort of re-educate. Okay. Uh, we have a little dialogue here. Uh, Michael Wilkins, who was, uh, wrote a book called Following the Master, a really excellent uh, kind of scholarly text on disciple-making and with the, the whole biblical New Testament context of, of that. But he's, he says when he speaks to groups, he asks them two questions. First one is, how many of you can say in the humble confidence of your own heart that you are a true disciple? Please raise your hand. And he says the usual response he gets is this people will kind of <laughs> then look around, put their hand down. <laughs> so not too many people are willing to identify as that. Then he asks the second question. How many people can say in the humble confidence of your own heart that you are a true Christian? And people, and raise your hand, people put their hands up. So what's the difference in people's mind between Christian and disciple? What is that? What, you, what do you think? What are they, why are they able to say, I'm Christian, unable to say, I'm, I'm a disciple? I think that in the true disciple, I think there's this, there's this gap between what I should be doing and what I am doing. Uh-huh. Right. That's right. Okay. So a disciple is about what we do. Is a Christian more about what we are or what what has been done for us? So I think when we associate Christian with, okay, I can be a Christian because I've been given a, a righteousness that is not my own. You know, I now have right standing with God, and that makes me a Christian. A disciple is more on the side of, okay, am I, is the gap closing between what I should be and what I am? You know, that kind of thing. Well, we know so, that the word is associated with discipline, right? It's, right. It's maybe I'm not disciplined enough to be a disciple, but I'm definitely saved. I'm a Christian. Yeah, right. And that, that will lead right into this little conversation. So a pastor on a Sunday morning preaches a barn burner sermon and on discipleship, and a particular person in the congregation is didn't like what he what uh, this actually was a woman in terms of an actual conversation, but could just as easily been a man. Uh, comes up to the pastor after he's preached this very strong sermon and says, Pastor, I just want to be a Christian. I don't want to be a disciple. I like my life the way it is. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and I will be with him when I die. Why do I have to be a disciple? Should put a question mark at the end. Uh, why do I have to be a disciple? So let's, let's take that statement apart a bit. Uh, so what distinction does this woman make? Discipleship is optional. Discipleship is optional. Christian? Disciple? Uh, I think I'll choose Christian. Okay. Um, so she thinks there's two different categories she's, that you can separate yourself into. Secondly, uh, why doesn't she want to be, be a disciple? Requires change and sacrifice. What's that? It requires change and sacrifice. Okay. I like my life the way it is. So whatever she thinks a disciple is, there's a gap between where she is and where she's maybe expected to be, and I, I'm not going there. I always think well, maybe it's the Africa thing, you know, the, God will send me to Africa if I'm a disciple, that kind of thing. So, um, then, uh, so what's her definition of a Christian? Cheap grace. Cheap grace. Okay. Yeah. Right. I believe that Jesus died for my sins, and I will be with him when I die. Intellectual ascent. Say that again? Intellectual ascent? Okay. I believe in Jesus. Not saying faith, but just the words. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah, but I, I believe that, you know, Jesus died for my sins. I, I'm a sinner, and he's died for me. I 
ask for forgiveness of my sins, and that's been, been offered to me, so that's the standing that I have. And boom, there's a gap kind of between now and forever. Uh, I will be with him uh, when I die. So how did she come to the conclusion that she could be a Christian without being a disciple? That's the norm in the church, it seems like. So she looks around yeah. and it just seems like that's the way it is, right? Right, yeah. And, and in what terms have we been preaching the gospel? Isn't, isn't this the terms that most of us hear when we're preaching the gospel? Yeah. Admit your, acknowledge your need for salvation. Put your trust in Christ for that he forgives your sin. And you, you will then be with him when you die. That's, you look back in a lot of the salvation booklets uh, that people would read through, or yeah, that's exactly the message that you get. So there's not a, so her question, why do I have to be a disciple? She saw no connection between being, becoming a Christian and giving her life to a lifestyle of, of discipleship, right? So that's, um, so what are the barriers in people's minds that keep them from becoming disciple makers? What qualifies a person to be a, a disciple maker? That's what I'll, I'll try to tackle that in this, this particular session. So I um, want to kind of take you into the scheme of things that we use uh, in uh, Global Discipleship Initiative um, for our, our teaching format. So we haven't gone over this a lot in this, uh, this particular class, uh, but we've kind of used this particular, what's a successful disciple-making journey look like, disciples who make disciples? And what elements are, are necessary for that? So we talk about the relational environments, or you need a vehicle to take a journey. And the relational environment that we talk about in, in, in our ministry is the microgroup is the relational environment. So that's the, the setting uh, that you, when you get in that car, you've got to be on a journey. Uh, no, it's a four-passenger car. Uh, so uh, that's the, you keep the microgroups at a uh, size of three or four. Then every car, every car needs a driver, and that's what we call the intentional leader. Uh, that's a little bit of a, probably a misnomer in terms of the way we would talk about uh, leading a microgroup experience because it's more of a facilitator role uh, as then a leadership role, uh, and you're trying to guide people into discoveries together in terms of the, what you accomplished. And, and we'll take a look at that, uh, that leader role in a moment. And then reproducible process uh, is, was related to a, the, the GPS, you know, what guides you to your destination. And we, we compare that to a disciple-making curriculum, a biblically-based disciple-making curriculum is your map to get you to where, where you want to go. And we'll take a, un, unpack both of those here in, in this session. Okay, so let's take a look at accessibility of leadership. If, uh, if the average person is going to be able to make disciples and lead a discipleship process, then it has to be something that is profoundly simple. <laughs> it can't not be a complex uh, thing. And one of the things that we love about the microgroup is you're getting together to have a conversation. You're enjoying each other's company. You're three or four people uh, talking together. It doesn't require a whole lot of trained leadership to lead a conversation when you have a curriculum that you're going through, when you're sharing your own life with each other, when you're asking some kind of sharing questions in terms of, you know, what's, um, you know, what was difficult about this week, you know, when you come together or... What makes it hard for you to be here right now and be present? Or what do you have to be thankful for for what happened this week? And just throw out some very simple kinds of questions to stay current uh, with each other. So it's, it's profoundly simple in terms of a group stays small. The larger the group, the more complex the group is, the more leadership training is required. Uh, and you get a group of 10 people together, for example. What's the dynamics that sets it? Well, I think the usual thing is that four people dominate, and the other six will have minimal contributions, and uh, and then a leader then is required to figure out how you can then pull everybody else in, or shut somebody up, and uh, so that you can have a, a conversation. So the more people there, the more complex. The harder it is to get down to the real stuff of one's life, 
so that's why we keep it small because we want to get to a trust level where you can have raw honesty together about what's really going on in your life. Because if you are not, not applying the Word of God to the place where you actually live, you're not going to have transformation. We do a lot of Bible studies where we get more information of Scripture, uh, but it's not really touching exactly where we live our lives. And that's the whole, whole point here. So profoundly simple. Uh, really, the, the facilitator role, the, co, the leader role in there, uh, initially requires you to do two things. One is to form the group. So the person is taking the initiative to pray about finding two or three others and join you in that, that process. I'm actually moving as much to having people pair up with each other at the end of this microgroup as I am having people go out individually. It's a lot harder for people to go out individually than it is to go out in pairs. I've got a group right now that's just about ready to replicate, and we're, we're just dividing our four into two groups of two. And then we each then go out and find two more. And uh, it's just to have that kind of support makes it a lot easier uh, for people to say, okay, I can do this. If, uh, as long as you're by my side, I can do it, you know, as long. Um, so the idea, so that, that role of, of prayerfully considering who it is that you're going to invite and take along with you. And then secondly, the leader stresses the importance of a covenant, the commitments you are making together to be a part of this, the disciples and essentials. <coughs> Uh, has a built-in covenant to it with five, five points, five, five fingers on my hand. Um, there, and uh, so we, the idea of walking through that covenant and getting people to own it, when I take people through the covenant, I ask them, okay, state to me in your own words what you're committing yourself to. I want people to say what it is that they are doing. Uh, with How much time do you think this is going to require of you? Uh, so it's not just a matter of reading through the covenant and saying, do you assent to it? It's a matter of uh, having people re-articulate, okay, what is this asking of you uh, to do? And uh, to do it that way. Now, I, we do the covenant. We do it in front of each other and uh, the four people that you're being in your group. And you sign the covenant in each other's presence. Uh, and then you're going to, a couple of times throughout your experience together, you're going to go back and review and renew the covenant. And so after lesson eight and lesson 16, that's part of the process here is, is reviewing and renewing the covenant. And you self-evaluate at that point. You know, we have a one to five score and you look at each points of the covenant, you evaluate how you're doing in, in keeping that covenant. And so that's a major part of that, that, that role. Um, so simplicity uh, is, is vital in this whole thing. Um, Secondly, leaders are trained in the group. Oftentimes get the question, do um, you have a separate training program for leaders? And I say, no. Uh, why should I do that? When you can just train the leaders right in the group itself. And the way we train them is very simple. You just share leadership. So you start off by saying, in the first, I'll lead the first four to six lessons, something like that. And, uh, and you can see the way I do it. You can modify the way I do it. Come up with your own style. We have different suggestions in terms of how the group, how the groups can you know, cover content and material. People can make it their own, and then we're just kind of okay. Joe, Joe, Evans, you're you're, you're up next. Uh, you're taking us through lesson three, and as long as it takes us to get through lesson three, that's your lesson, and so on. You know, through the group. And by the time you're done, people have led that group multiple, multiple times. They find out it's not rocket science. Uh, that it's something you can do fairly easily, and so it gives you confidence when it comes to your turn to initiate a group, then uh, you, it's, it's there available for you in, in front of you. So then thirdly, uh, group members learn from each other. I, I guess I really would call this a peer discipling process. You know, it's, it's not somebody elevated over others, uh, but as you bring your own insights into Scripture and bring them together with each other, you're learning from each other. You're, you're, you're taking notes on what each other's saying. I bet you all of us here in blue shirts have taken notes on other th what other people have said, you know, and said, oh, I never thought of that before. I'm going to steal that answer uh, and use it my next time. Um, there, I have one guy in my group who is thought in pictures, and he said, uh, discipling is kind of like the old westerns when a sheriff uh, rounded up a posse, 
uh, go after the bad guys. He slapped a badge on, on the posse, gave them the authority to go arrest these guys. And that's kind of like discipling, isn't it? Isn't that what Jesus did for us? He slapped a badge on us and said, go get the bad guys. <laughs> you know? And uh, I kind of like that. That was, that was kind of interesting. So we're learning from each other. Um, one of my favorite groups recently uh, had a wide age span uh, in it. Uh, we had myself, and then we had a 57-year-old uh, CFO type guy. Uh, had his own business, kind of was a CFO for uh, virtual CFO for a lot of different businesses, especially in the agricultural area. And then we had a 26-year-old who had been just a few years out of out of college, who was involved in the entertainment industry, was as a producer. And then we had an 18-year-old uh, freshman in, in high school. And what if? Who that was uh, to have this this group of that kind of age man in it. Uh, the eighteen year old was a remarkable young man. I mean, he's, I must admit he was uh, mature beyond his years in terms of his commitment to Christ. Came out of a a family that was at very opposed to him becoming a Christian. They kept uh, hoping he would get over it. <laughs> you know? uh, he didn't get over it. In fact, he's at Providence College now in Pasadena. Um, studying to, I think, in a direction probably towards some form of ministry professionally there. But, uh, and then the 26-year-old, uh, during the time of our, our time together, uh, was gravitating out of his entertainment business world to starting to study in seminary and now is associate pastor of a church in our area. So, And then the 57-year-old, uh, he was the one that had major challenges in the group. Because all groups will have things that you go through and Scott, um, because of the honesty of the sharing that we had in our group, began to recognize some very major deficiencies in his marriage and that things were not going well. And that forced him to take a look at that. And for 155 days during our discipleship time, he was separated from his wife. Uh, that was with the intent of, of getting individual counseling for both of them, joint counseling, so that they would then could become new people and get back together again. And they are back together again. So, but he would credit the, the group uh, with his ability to face the things that he, he needed. And you can imagine his hesitancy initially of sharing marital struggles with an 18 year old and a 26 year old who were single, <laughs> but he did. And uh, I think it was such a wonderful model for them to see how he handled all of that and, and this is real life exposure for them uh, so the actually the younger one in the group is now engaged to be married and will be married next next summer so uh, these are, are wonderful experiences on the, on the personal side group members learn from each other so you become mutual sharpening uh, and then moving the mindset from consumer to contributor uh, one of the things that I, I see happens in this group life is very transformative. A growing network of disciple-makings will transform a mindset of followers of Jesus. There is, uh, you know, we're, we live in a consumer society. We talked about that in a previous session. And if you could see people move from being consumers to contributors, from being passive to practitioners, from being feed, from feed me to self-feeding, from coming to get to coming to give, uh, can you imagine the impact that that has on the tone of a congregation when you see people transformed of being just a participant in a group and then they turn around and become leaders of a group? How does that change the psyche of a follower of Christ? Well, I, I saw that at the Camarillo Community Church. Uh, how many of you are connected to Camarillo Church? Or, you know, so. And the thing that uh, I so enjoyed about visiting that church that went through a massive transformation process was the energy level of people in the church. And invariably, um, they would individuals would come up to me and so proudly show me their Discipleship Essentials books. And they kept track of multiplication of their groups by decals on the front of their books. And it's like decals on helmets of a football player. Well, they put them on their Discipleship books. And uh, so, and they would show me, I was in, this is the group that I participated in, and these are the groups I've led, and these are the people that have multiplied, and I, I, here I can trace my, my family tree, 
And they were so excited about being able to be used of God in that way. And I just, it was, I just delighted in that thing. The change in the psyche from passive receivers to active givers releases that energy within you. You want to be in a church like that? Yeah, I think so. We want to, uh, I want to be in a church where I have to try breathlessly keep up with the people, my congregation. You know, that would be, be wonderful. That's why I use this rocket ship analogy, you know. Uh, what role do, do microgroups play in, in the life of a church? I compare them to the first stage of a multiple stage rocket. Now, to get a rocket off the ground, I'm not much of a scientist, but I think that first stage has to be the one that propels it with the greatest force and energy to get it off the gravitational pull of the Earth, to get the beyond the inertia that would hold it down, to get inertia of momentum that would loft it forward. And that's why I see these foundational microgroups as launching pads, in a sense, of the first stage of a rocket. Now, it's not all the Christian life. I wouldn't ever claim... Uh, to be that, it's, it's, but it's what gets you going in terms of the uh, launching into a, a new new atmosphere and to an initiator of groups. Finally, uh, my group leaders are affirmed and recognized. And LP, I think you're going to be talking to this, if you would. LP Cook and Ben Schnipper are staff at Union Hill Baptist Church. They're located across the river from Jefferson City, Missouri. They are one of our model churches in the Midwest region. They're multi-generational and making disciples who are making disciples. And what we want you to hear from from him is how they have uh, went to a church. All the ministry was done by who? Most of our children, and move, they're moving out of that dependency model and sharing the ministry and equipping believers to do the work of the ministry. So uh, you're doing a phenomenal job. And they each have received, we do something in the Midwest region where when a microgroup gets through their process a year, my last microgroup went 18 months. Steve Alonzo, so if you want somebody, he just finished his first microgroup. On Monday, he starts, he is, he is initiating his first microgroup on his own. And in the Midwest, when a microgroup gets to the end, and the members, those who have committed to go to that next step and initiate, we do a process called the passing of the baton. This is our Midwest. Ben, you got to come up here too, just for a minute. But as our model church, and they have moved that, setting the example, the next step for them is inviting churches to come under them and learn. And before long is Chris. Chris is not in here yet. Um, there's a pastor. 10 minutes? 10 miles? Uh, yeah, 30 or 40, but yeah. Oh, okay. I thought it was okay. <clears throat> yeah, they're on the other side of Columbia. They are going to start learning from them. And so, in their recognition of taking yet a new step of faith, uh, we want to congratulate them by the passing of a baton on our batons is inscribed 2 Timothy 2.2. And what is that? The Apostle Paul saying to young Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of Many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Come on, Mr. Schnipper. So in recognition of your step of faith, I want to pass over our Midwest region baton to you and challenge each of you never to drop the baton. Keep passing that on to other churches. I know you will with your church members continue to develop disciples and move them from observers to participants to leaders. You're doing a great job with that. Keep up the good job with inviting churches under your umbrella. This is Dave Shanuel. He's uh, our national director for Global Discipleship Initiative and has really done a great job of developing 
in the Midwest, a model that we want to replicate uh, throughout the country. So Dave is a re fairly recent member of our team. and Stradrower is our co-leader yeah. uh, in, he's, he is uh, in his fifth generation, a lay person, Ben Stipper, LP, part of that leadership team. <coughs> okay, so, yeah, so if we can be of any help, talk to Dave. So, go ahead. So, Dave's done an excellent job of making it sound like Union Hill has it all figured out, and we are way down the process, and that is not true. Ben would say, uh, Ben's the other pastor at Union Hill. I should, I have the distinction of lead pastor, and uh, but uh, he would say, I'm not even sure my lead pastor is actually going to have a group one of these days, because some of these things, you know, you, you, you think, oh, that'll happen, and intentionality is such a great word, but... Uh, we did, I, I would say, the, in, in this vein uh, of the accessibility of leadership, Ben and I took our lives in our hands early on in the process um, because we asked our wives to start a group. Some of you appreciate how that yeah, might go. <clears throat> My wife said, and this is as near an exact quote as I can, as I can say, she said, I'm not a teacher. And, and Greg, she said something interesting with the slides. Uh, right after that, she said, and even if you water it down and say facilitator, I'm not that either. <laughs> and, Sounds uh, like she needed to be in a group. Yeah, well, and... and uh, skipped um, her, you skipped a step there. Yeah, yeah. She, well, and, and I would say there's, there's probably a separate obstacle. How do we get started in you know, the right? other gen in exactly. gender? How do you start, uh, yeah. you know, a women's group? I, I've if, had that challenge. Yeah, so, uh, but anyway... Um, she said, I'm, I'm not that. And, and what I had come under the conviction of before and I got to encourage her with right then was, if it, if it doesn't work for people who don't have the spiritual gift of teaching, then it's not the tool we need. Because every accessibility, everybody has to be able to do this. Um, I'm happy to report that while we're not far down the road, the ladies group, that first ladies group has concluded and she is praying about who she's going to bring into her next group. Somewhere along the line. She meaning your wife? My wife, yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and Ben's wife also. Uh, but uh, they're praying about who they're going to bring into their groups. They have found along the line that, in fact, I don't, I don't need those particular gifts. I don't have to be the pastor. Um, Good. They could do that. And, and, I, and I might say that we talked about dependency earlier. Um, I think there is something for pastors that we have to come to grips with that we would say we don't want our folks to be dependent on us, but it's awfully nice to be needed. Yes. And we're going to have disciples that we haven't touched directly. I mean, we do through preaching, but when I, we have another micro, then they're going to do some people. And those disciples are going to be made by people who aren't me. I didn't sit in their group. How can this be okay? You know, really nervous. And, and I might say, uh, Greg has practiced that in our sessions, right? Because Greg and I have not met before yesterday yeah. and then just barely. But Dave, through Ben, is connected with me. And so I've been entrusted today. And now before I mess that trust up, I'm going to sit down. <laughs> Well, you've had to navigate then a shift in understanding the way ministry is understood in your congregation, right? Absolutely. So, uh, you probably inherited an expectation that you were going to be the primary caregivers, um, the primary discipler, the primary hospital visitor, all those kinds of things that, mm -hmm. that uh, come with it. And then you're trying to shift into another model of ministry that says, no, the ministry is the people's ministry. I'm here to help you discover your ministry. Right. That's a big shift. Um, so and we, we probably got to unpack that for a while, but just just briefly though, I had a, the the brother who served ahead of me, senior pastor. He stayed on staff. We did an intentional transition. I was at Union Hill fifteen and a half years before I became the lead pastor wow. uh, in the associate role. Mm -hmm. Intentional transition. He's the one who said this is not the way we did it, but he was in our first group. I'm I'm going through that, and as as pastors, if we've done if we've done a different model, we have the ability to say. Okay, that's right. We did it this way before. We need to do better if we can. Okay. Yeah. Well, good. That's good for him. Oh. Good to be able to admit that and, and give, give you, no give you uh, 
uh, the ability to carry on. Well, thank you, Kelby. Appreciate that. So this last element, uh, let's talk about this a little bit. Microgroup micro leaders affirmed and recognized. I always thought, how, how do you flip the pyramid? Uh, if, if transformation is taking place primarily in these smaller units, then how do the people who are guiding those smaller units become, I might even use this, the most important people in your church? Yeah. I mean, if that's actually where discipling is occurring, it's not underlings, it's how do you flip the pyramid so that things are focused to support them rather than the other way around. You know, so um, part of that is you know, how you honor them, how you gather people together. I know the Camarillo Church, and this is what I've done in my own ministry as well. Uh, you bring the disciple makers together on a regular basis. We used to do it quarterly. Uh, you know, honor them and their work. Um, uh, share what's happening in their group life. Uh, but part of what you do is this whole baton pass thing. And so that's what you see. So here's a group of guys who completed their, their discipleship group. You get to pass the baton because they're on their way to creating their own group experience as well. They're passing the baton to the <coughs> next generation. So, um, yeah, you know, I know at Camarillo and other places, they take moments in public worship. And when people are getting ready to move on to their own, they bring them up on stage, hand them a baton, and say, God bless you, you're on to your next level of journey. And so that just that way it reinforces what we're all about here. It also honors those people that have actually completed that process and are carrying on. And uh, so, uh, I don't know, if you, if you think of other creative ways that we could flip that pyramid to make sure that what's happening at the grassroots is really what's the most important thing. Um, that's somehow we have to think about that. So, okay, um, in our time remaining, I want to move on to this last part, and that is reproducible process. Um, so you bring these three elements together, the relational environment, the microgroup, the intentional leader who's driving the car, the facilitator, as we've been calling him. And then the third element here is reproducible process, which I'm equating with um, the whole idea of a curriculum. Right? Biblically-based curriculum. So one of our values is biblically-based curriculum. Discipleship Essentials covers the foundation for a life in Christ and is the empowerment tool we use to disciple others. Uh, so um, what's the value? What's the importance of curriculum in this whole process? That's what I want to stress at this point. So why might a foundational universal curriculum be a value for a ministry? What would be the consequences if you don't have a foundational curriculum? And that's what I want to talk about next. So uh, without a curriculum, what happens? Without a curriculum, you don't have a plan. You, don't, you haven't mapped out in your own understanding of what a disciple looks like. You haven't decided what, what your, the profile is that you're trying to create in terms of a, a direction you're going. And so uh, the way I look at this is that I think most people uh, have a, a bunch of disconnected tiles disconnected pieces of puzzle uh, that they have never assembled together. A good curriculum assembles the independent pieces of puzzle. So think about, uh, you know, taking a piece of puzzle and tossing it in a shoebox or a box. And so, you know, people hear a message and it has a great truth to it. Oh, I got to remember that message. Toss it in the box. I've been reading through scripture. Oh, I got to remember that truth. Toss that in the box. Uh, somebody else shares something with you. Oh, God, hold on to that. Toss that in the box. Before long, you've got a bunch of jumbled pieces of puzzle, right? And how do you put a puzzle together? We all know how to do that. You get a puzzle, has a picture on the front, as to what you're trying to assemble. You pour all the pieces out, you, you create the frame by getting all the straight edges, and you fill in the, the big places based upon the color on the box, and then you assemble something. Well, that's what I think a decent curriculum does, is it assembles the picture of what a Christian life is all about, and it gives you a, a sense of a plan a visualization uh, of there, what you can be. So, and the value here is if people, if you're, just think about this, if your vast majority of your church has gone through, a, say, a, a similar or the same foundational curriculum, wouldn't you want to be a pastor of a church that knows that they, they have covered in a relational fashion the fundamentals of the faith? And when you are preaching to them or teaching them or re recruiting leaders for your church, that you know that they have gone through a process. 
Um, basically, what you're doing with this process here is you're, you're developing a farm system of your, of your future leaders. So think about it in terms of baseball, when you, you know, you're raising up your, your disciples. Well, what do we do with leaders? Well, we just grab people who fill a slot who have never been discipled. And so we lead right over the discipleship part of it and put them in positions for which they are not qualified to, to do spiritually or otherwise. And uh, so, so you need to go through this, this process first. Second, uh, second thing here, without a curriculum, you will not be intentional. I guess that's a key word in this conference, isn't it? I think that's uh, what we have been focused on here. And uh, so that's why in my definition of discipling in Discipleship Essentials, I start with discipling is an intentional relationship in which we walk alongside other disciples. Uh, so the intentionality. So what do we mean by intention? Well, uh, it's purposeful. It's covenantal. Uh, people are, are guided in a process of growing to maturity and assisted in a direction. Uh, what's the opposite of intention? Haphazard, random, unscheduled, let's do lunch sometime, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, what's the difference between discipling and mentoring? How would you, how would you define the difference between discipling and mentoring? I think mentoring is a it's a specific topic that you could be helping somebody with, but when we're trying to make disciples, that that touches their whole life. That's a hard transformation. So okay. it's much broader. Much broader. Okay. One distinction that's helpful. I think discipleship involves this specific aspect of learning to follow Christ and then being able to to do that with other people. Okay. And mentoring. mentoring can often stop when you yeah. Become um, you're teaching me to do something or mentoring me, but it stops. Okay. Not necessarily, not meant to be replicatable right. in a sense. Yeah. Other thoughts? Well, with the, <clears throat> what, what you've just been talking about, the shared leadership, mentoring very much is an expert and learner model as we're going through discipleship essentials. It's very much more shared. Right. Um, I don't retain the expert status that we learn together. Yeah. Okay, um, my understanding with mentoring, uh, they differ in, in two major ways. One is who initiates the relationship, and the, and the nature of the agenda of the of the relationship. So with mentoring, it's usually the mentee that is seeking out a mentor, right, and finding somebody that they have some respect for, and the content is generally set by the mentee in terms of what issues would you like to talk about. And the mentor doesn't determine the agenda, the mentees are the agenda. And so how can I help you with whatever it is that you want to have some help? How, are, how can I be a you know, sounding board or a process person? In discipling, it's the discipler who initiates the relationship. And the, in a sense, there's much more of an agenda or content placed before you in terms of what you're trying to cover. So I think that's you know, major distinctions uh, between the two that might be helpful uh, for us. Um, thirdly, uh, you don't have a transferable tool. Now, this is uh, a very important part of discipling. Uh, we talked earlier, you know, what, uh, why would people not be able to disciple others? And what would they want to have had? Uh, and people might say, well, what do I do? What do I use? And do I have something that I can use with others that would be, would be helpful? And so the idea of a transferable tool, once you have completed the content, then you can then use it over and over again, uh, which is what we encourage people to do. Dave, how many different times have you gone through Disciples of Essentials with people? Four, I'm on my 14th. 14th group. Aren't you getting tired of that? Not. <laughs> Why not? Why aren't you getting tired? Just finished with Steve and three what, weeks ago what, started a new one. Why, what, what keeps it alive? You've, got, you've gone over that material. Funny time. Are were you a slow learner or what? I, yeah, probably. <laughs> but it's the people that makes the difference, right? Yes. Yeah, every group has its own personality. And, uh, and you know, Greg, we've all experienced every time you read a passage of scripture, seasons of God's word doesn't change, but we do. Yeah. Right. So we, yeah. we read a passage of scripture 20 times and God speaks to you 20 yeah, and uh, your, your circumstances are different when you need to hear at different times. 
uh, in terms of scripture. Is, uh, so it's a transferable tool. Yeah. I was going to just say, Greg, too, it, the beauty of this transferable tool is I've been working with or mentoring a uh, Chinese a Chinese pastor. He's starting the first Lutheran church in Minneapolis. That's what I call biblical Lutheran church in Minneapolis. And he wanted to be he wanted to be disciple, and so we looked for a, a tool. His primary language is Mandarin Chinese. So I called I called um, GDI. You tell me, can you get me in contact with your supply of uh, GDI? And I was told by GDI, well, it, it, we didn't plan it, but it's there somehow. It's, it's, it's been translated, and it's called this number. So I called a separate ministry. Oh, you got it. Got it. And yeah. the, and then the, the pastor who, who received it, is a, he works primarily with graduate and postgraduate students at, at the university level. Yeah. He said it's not only... A good tool, but it was this Chinese Mandarin was exceptionally translated. You know, sometimes the translation can be weak, but it seemed like the Lord just the Lord is raising up people who can transfer that tool all across the world, and it's really wonderful to watch. Oh, that's great! I'm glad to get that confirmation. He said, Boy, it's I great. all kinds of translations out there who I, when I have no idea how well they've been done. Right. That. <laughs> so obviously, I don't read Chinese, um, but that's that's good good confirmation. So intentional transferable tool. Let me tell you one one story about this. That uh, uh, one of the guys that I invited into um, my discipleship group was a man in his mid sixties. Uh, I was at Christ Church of Oak Brook, um, and I was one leading the new members process. So Mick comes into our new members process. He hands me a notebook, and this notebook is a ninety-seven single space page book where he's compared Roman Catholicism with Protestant theology. He'd been raised as a Roman Catholic all of his life, goes to Mass every Sunday, married a young Methodist gal when she was 22 years old. She converted to Catholicism so they could get married to the Catholic Church. And now his, his bride is now saying, I'm going back to my roots. Mick, if you want to follow me, that's great, um, but I'm back to my Protestant roots. And so they came into our church. He comes in the new members class with a satisfied mind now that he can understand what Protestant theology is all about. So I invite him, I'm just getting ready to start a new group, so I invite Mick to join us. We're meeting at a law office of one of the other members in his conference room. And the very first day we meet, Mick comes in with his thick study Bible, got all the tabs on the book. And, uh, and then he puts his hand on the Bible like, you know, he's swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He says, I have never opened a Bible. Hmm. And I said, this is exactly how the conversation went. I said, you mean you've never read it seriously? I have never opened a Bible. <laughs> he, did a, he, he read uh, Burkhoff's book on Roman Catholicism and, <laughs> and took all the notes out, but never you know, studied the original text. And uh, I said, well, this is going to be an interesting journey. Um, <laughs> but Mick, being obviously a very serious student, as he obviously was, uh, he, he dove in, he was wrestled with the scripture memory stuff, had all kinds of deep-seated Roman Catholic theology in his being, and especially works orientation, which we kept coming back to in terms of trying to deal with it. No, that's, no, you're saved by grace, not by works. You know, get that into your system. Um, and uh, 20 months later, this was a group that lasted a while because we had to trace down all the rabbit trails that Mick led us on. Uh, and uh, so he uh, started his own group after 20 months. So two other guys and himself. Now Mick was wise enough to know what he didn't know. And so they would, they would just keep a running tab of questions. <laughs> and invite me in about every three months. Uh, here, here we got 15 questions now, Greg. Yeah, let's, let's go over these questions. And it was just such a joy to see him catch that and be able to take on that kind of leadership uh, after that every time. So um, he had a transferable tool. He had something he could use. Uh, and didn't have to know all the theology, but uh, could do it. Uh, without a curriculum, you don't have, you won't have a sense of progression or progress. Um, that's um, this is one of the things I noticed when I was before I had written Disciples of Essentials and started using this. Um, 
that I would be in the sense of making up stuff as I went. So I'd be in discipling relationships, particularly one-on-one at that time, and I would just be bringing in different resources on different topics. So we need something on basic Christianity. Okay, let's do John Stott's book on that topic. Let's go through that. We need something on um, you know, devotional life. Well, let's find some resources there. Uh, you can get the point. I'm, you know, I just said kind of cobbling things together. But I had no sense of progress because I was just bouncing around from one topic to the next. And are we, are we going anywhere with this? But now having a curriculum that has a sense of progression to it, I can say, okay. Now, because the way Disciples of Essentials is laid out, it's four sections. Starts with two lessons on what is discipling and who is a disciple. So it sets up the whole focus of discipleship right from the beginning. You then go immediately into four spiritual disciplines. Uh, in terms of what you're supposed to be practicing. Then the second section of the book is answers the question, what has Christ done for us? There's kind of the, the doctrinal section there on the, the Trinitarian nature of God, the work of our sin and the work of Christ and the, the benefits of that. Third section is on what does Christ want to do in us? How does he want to remake us from the inside out? The work of the Holy Spirit. And that section, trust, love, justice, witness, uh, in terms of that. And then the last section is on what does Christ want to do through us? How does he, you want to use us in his life of ministry? We look at the whole issue of church, ministry gifts, um, there's spiritual warfare, um, what it means to be obedient, and then what it means to be a witness you know, for Christ. And then there's a last chapter tagged on called money. Uh, um, that's right at the end because that was the first version of the book was 24 lessons in a varsity came back to me and said, yeah, let's. Want you, is there something you left out that you want to add? And I said, yeah, but then they said, I, we don't want to page, change the page numbers, so we can't, can't stick it in there somewhere else. So this tagged it on at the end. So lesson on money. So it seemed like that was pretty important. Where your treasure is, there is your heart also. And it's a topic that we want to cover. Um, and then finally, uh, uh, you will not have a structure to define your time together. So... This curriculum gives you tracks to run on, gives you structure for your time. Now, in our, the dynamics of a life, a group like this, is that you're going to be getting off tracks because you're going to be dealing with crises in people's lives. You're going to be dealing with hurts in people's lives. You know, Ralph, uh, my partner here, who's not here today because he's, he's ill back at the hotel, um, you know, tells the story about coming to one of his groups. Uh, and, uh, and Ed, who's in his group, says, well... Uh, you know, Paul and I are done. We're, we're finished. Our marriage is over. And uh, then his group members said to him, oh, no, it isn't. <laughs> we're not going to let that happen. And, you know, and he said, we set aside everything for the next three weeks just to deal with Ed's situation and uh, basically hold him accountable to, you know, getting this marriage back in order again. And, but then you have tracks to come run back on. To finish that story, though, uh, at Ralph's retirement, Ed and Paula were sitting in the very first row of the people gathered there, and they were the first ones to stand up and say, we would not be married, but for that discipleship group. Yeah. So that's some of the kinds of things that happens in the, that group. Uh, and I, I've already told you my story about, about that as well. So um, we'll, you have a structure uh, to run on. Okay, I'm going to stop at this point and see if any comments, questions, um, that you want to have, Rob. Hey, Greg, so, you know, at the beginning you were talking about transformation is the goal. Yeah. So so what do you do with somebody, you're coming to the end of discipleship essentials, and you just haven't, if you, people mature at different speeds, because sure. we're all different people. Right. And, you know, heart, it might have taken 36 weeks for that heart to just start cracking, and, and that right. transformation is just starting. Yeah. And you maybe you don't sense they're ready to go and launch their own group. So yeah. so how do you how do you kind of curtail the disciple making process for each person and, and measure transformation rather than just finishing the content? Yeah, it's, those are very subjective evaluations, aren't they? It's you know I I don't have real clear measurements and criteria. It's just things that you sense of whether people are dealing honestly with things and we're seeing an openness in that. And if you feel like this person's not ready to effectively lead a group, you wouldn't want them to replicate their life in right. this group experience. Exactly. Um, that, that's where you can say, oh, let, uh, why don't you and I kind of go on? We'll do it together. You know, and we'll start another group, but you can still stay with me. 
and uh, hold on to it in that fashion. So I think that would be one way to handle that if you sense um, that that person is not ready to do it. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Good. Brock or well, I was going to suggest uh, if you're one who who has led a group and your two are ready to go out or three. Uh, one thing I've started doing is I will hold off and start another group so I make sure I've walked with these other ones and make sure they have led two groups. So if somebody you don't think is ready, you can walk with him, help him find some yeah. other men or whatever. You might even sit down on the first maybe two or three. You know, I, I don't think you know on the first two or three to help get them started and those kinds of But again, you gauge that. But I think it's good to continue to walk along beside of them. Don't think that oh it's done you're leaving them hanging. Yeah. You, know, you continue to do that. That's just something I, I've done. I uh, want to start doing to make sure that my two men are ready to you know get their next group going. I might help them find men. Yeah. You know, always use the resources that you have available. Right. Yeah, ideally, I think the, the situation is when you're getting towards the end of your group and there's a trigger point after lesson 20 where you are then to seriously consider those people that you are to be investing in. And so it it's, get, gives you some time. But you're, you're asking people all along, you know, who you're thinking about, who, who, who's gone drawing into your life. And so you start asking that question. I, the ideal situation is that these people get their new groups launched before you complete your other one. So you have an overlap uh, there, so you can kind of gauge how things are going. And most often, uh, you will have kind of a reunion experience. You know, what happens to these relationships after you've completed the process? Well, uh, many of them, you will, you will continue to get together with them on some, some level of frequency. The group that I was describing with the 18-year-old, 26-year-old, 57-year-old, we met monthly afterwards for quite some time as they were launching their groups and getting them going. Uh, you know, Scott uh, told me all the wrong ways to start a group, and he was having a heck of a time getting group started. And I said, well, "What are you doing?" What's He's asked twelve different people, and they have all said no. I said, "Well, let me re let me read you the email that I send out." Email. Well, that there's the there's the problem right there. It's not a personal contact. Uh -huh. And then he's describing all the commitments that you're going to have to be involved in this process and then sends an email out. And, and I said, Scott, now you're wiser than that. <laughs> you know, people are going to reject that in a half a second in terms of the kind of level of commitment. You get together with them and sit down and talk to them and share your own experience in life with them and all that stuff. So I, I, I didn't, he was telling me how hard it was for him to get these groups going. I didn't realize the process that he was using. <laughs> no, and that, so that's uh, not the way to do it. So, yeah. David. How do we um, keep the focus on discipleship as the big goal, uh, reproduction, and then keeping the right perspective? You know, we're using this as a tool. You said, so, yeah, so that we don't turn it into, well, this is the discipleship essentials curriculum discipleship program, because people will def default into that and think it's really about it's about the tool. And how do you, I'm just curious how you balance that like over time as you, you've got waves of people go through this that they've been discipled and they're maybe they're starting another group but maybe they're also contributing in the larger church ministry like you mentioned they have a, a leadership role that right. is someone who's spiritually mature to handle that how do you how do you talk about it in a way where you keep discipleship primary right and then tell people say well, this this is a reproducible tool this isn't the bible right it's a proven way of helping us see deceptive essentials so. you just answer your own question <laughs> uh, so just say that <laughs> yeah. that's do what i heard ask that though you, you I, I don't get asked that that much what i what i do what I, the major mistake and this is back to the program mentality <clears throat> that people have is okay we did discipleship essentials this year what's next mm -hmm. And so that's the, that's the biggest thing. You know, I'm working with a group in, in Texas right now, and I counseled them ahead of time. Do not preach through discipleship essentials and have yeah. groups that parallel it. Right. Guess what they did? Exactly that. Yeah. Uh, and, and now they're, I said, now, because I'm continuing to coach them, we're right at the end of our two-year process. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're now saying, I, I think you were right. Because yeah. <laughs> it's hard to then get people back into a they were not in my groups. They were in kind of a quasi-small group processing the content 
week in and week out as the pastor was preaching on a chapter. Yeah, no, really just just retaining that program top down. Yeah, it's an old mentality that yeah. says, okay, we did seven essentials. How about experiencing God next year? And then how about this next year? And how about that next year? Right. And it's just kind of getting the, the flavor of, of, the, of the year off of this stuff. Yeah, so. so, yeah, I think I think you answered your question about that in terms of just meeting this thing. This is just a tool. Yeah. Um, you know, the bigger processes are be, being and becoming disciples. You know? Yeah. This is just to assist that that process. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Question. You know, at risk of being formulaic or even, you know, putting God into a box. You had you mentioned the, the very age differences in that one. That yeah. One right. Yeah. Do you have a kind of any sort of rule of thumb for how you would choose that group in terms of what commonalities they have or what difference they have, or is it just as the work leads? I'm not really focused that much on that. I, in my experience over the years, I love the diversity of ages uh, in terms of the, the, what it brings to the richness of the group life. I think I would go back and say, you know, my favorite experiences and the dynamics were breadth of, of, of life. Now, I agree, uh, understandably, an 18-year-old has to be an unusual 18-year-old to be, able to be involved in that kind of experience. So. It, you have to be able to gauge from that to that person. I was very concerned in our initial groups. Oh, would he feel confident to just articulate his perspective on what he brought to Scripture? And he had no problem uh, doing that. In fact, he became the accountability guy for our group. We would share the, the, our chinks in our armor with each other, and then he would be the one to say, well, how's it going with that? How's it going with that? Log in here, you know? And uh, so it was, it was, it was really good. Um, we want to you know, make, mention a couple of things here at the end. Um, one is the, um, the cards. cards. We need, if you could fill out your cards and, and uh, sh- share them. If, if one of the main reasons to do so, and we're going to explain the coaching microgroup and the cohort. But once you get your cards, uh, there'll be a couple of Steve, Strad, Jim, collecting these cards. We're going to draw three of the cards out and hand out to each of you a copy of the curriculum. All right, so we get these filled out. Dan, do you want to explain cohort? Or do you want to do coaching microgroup first? I could do coaching microgroup. Okay. This is called shared leadership. Yeah. Uh, on here, you will see coaching microgroup. This is an eight to 10 week, it varies. We meet with pastors. Uh, to help them successfully launch their first microgroup. We will also work through the first couple of lessons in here. Why? We want you to embrace, and there are some paradigm shifts, embrace the elements of a microgroup. There are two members of my present coaching group here, uh, Daryl Jones from Illinois, Randy Edwards from Kentucky, and so if you want to talk with them, this is current uh, experience. So ask them about it or ask any one of us. By the way, all of us from GDI will remain here as long as we need to answering your questions once we're dismissed. Okay, so if you're interested in a coaching microgroup, check that on your card. And Dan's going to tell us about. So now you're into your second or third generation of microgroups. Your questions change. It's starting to, to multiply in your church. And you're saying, gosh, there, there's some things I really wish I, I had someone to walk with me to answer my questions. Enter the, the, the cohort. Its purpose is changing, transforming your church into a disciple making mission. So it's a two year program. You're walking with three others. Uh, there's a tight fellowship that's formed. You're in this together and taking a deep dive into the structure and process of disciple making. You meet once a month, uh, probably good three to four hours, probably four hours of work. It's online. You'll get to see each other's comments. It's it's a wonderful experience. I'm a graduate of cohort one. Dave's a graduate of cohort two, so you can talk us, to us about the experience itself. But that second or third generation, now you're ready for the cohort. I've got some information on it. If you'd like to take it with you, I'm happy to hand you a folder. It's also available online at our website.
Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Up next, we've got Renew.org's track sessions from the most recent forum we did. So you're going to want to hit the subscribe button as soon as you can so that you know exactly when we drop those new episodes. All right, y'all. Thanks again for listening, and I hope that you enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you.